Coming to you from New York City. This week and every week, it's the Ben Kissel Show. Uh-oh, the water is immediately down. Do you want more water? Can you go anywhere, Nick, without just trashing place? I thought this was on uh, an on-purpose shtick. Get more water. Um, no, 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 I don't need any more water. You don't want any? No, that was my second glass, you know. Oh, my God. Um, all right, everyone, let's I just start the I show. Let's start the show where it deserves to be started with Nick knocking over a glass of water and cleaning it up. <laughs> <laughs> He's a goof. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm Ben Kissel, as always, joined by Mike Coscarelli. Thank you, Mike, for everything that you do. Check out Mike's podcast, Social Villains. It's very funny. Today's guest, Nick Turner. Thanks so much for being here, Nick. Thank you for having me. We were just discussing morning radio. The thing is, when you're a stand-up comedian, you go on the road, you're a headliner, you're a big star. And what do they do with stars? They treat you <laughs> terrible. You have to wake up. You do a show, sometimes two, sometimes three shows. Figure you end around midnight. After the after that midnight show, you tend to go out because there's some gals who thought you were mildly funny or some dudes offering to buy you booze because they thought that you were very funny. So you go out, and then you have to wake up at roughly 5 o'clock in the morning to go do 6 a.m. morning zoo radio. And, Nick, you've had some personal experiences with, uh, with this. It sounds like a living nightmare. Yeah. I haven't run into anything, like, too insane. Like, no one's hit me with, like, a honker. Like, a honk? <laughs> <laughs> that one. But they're, they're super condescending. And it's right. so funny because they are, like, upset when uh, the, you're not famous. Right, right. And uh, they'll be like, I, I didn't know who you are. And I was like, really, Johnny Z? You didn't know mm-hmm. who I was? Well, Jesus, I've been looking forward to this. Right. Meeting the famous Joe. Who the fuck are you? Right. I mean, that's the thing. There was something with the traditional radio DJ that can really, I mean, it's ruined the genre, one would argue. The douche level of a small town DJ is astronomical. It's through the roof. It's almost something that I'm envious of because they're completely oblivious to the fact that every single thing they say or do isn't actually getting a proper reaction from the audience because they can't see them. So they have the imaginary theater audience who is loving everything they're saying. People are listening. People are not turning it off. Because there's no... What else are they going to listen to? This is in the middle of the country. My favorite part is when they shit on other comedians. And they don't realize that uh, everybody knows each other. And it's just you go to some somebody and he's like this piece of shit and you're like oh yeah no of course that's my best friend is a piece of shit right what's a comedian you don't have to say their name no of course what, what was something that uh, they said about a previous comedian because then you can also just only well, they imagine just, they just know how funny everyone is you oh, know yeah. they'll be like this person is funny and this person isn't funny relative to how they performed on your shitty radio morning 6 a.m morning radio show yeah right i was once on a show um in uh, it was upstate. I was doing a weekend in Webster, New York. Okay. I'm not sure if that's exactly where the show was. But uh, in Webster, New York, for those that don't know, uh, New York in general, outside of New York City, is just as it's a uh, vast rural. Wasteland. It's a vast wasteland. It is as rural oh, as any other place in the country. Everywhere north of like New York and Boston and those areas is, is just Hickville. It's Wisconsin. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I was doing a show and I was in the studio and. Um, I was talking to them, and then they got a call from, um, uh, what was the guy? He was on that show, uh, Malcolm and Eddie, Eddie Griffin. Okay. No, not the Eddie comedian? Griffin. Eddie Griffin? The black yeah. comic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. He called in, and they just went on and on bonkers <laughs> about how he was the funniest man in the planet. He was going to be here two weeks from now. Wow. Y'all got to go. We had him in the studio last time he came. He is the funniest man in the planet. Anyway, back to Nick Turner. You're here tonight. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the white weekend. Um, you do comedy, huh? Uh, yeah, but that's the that's the funniest part. It's like every time I go up, the the. Um, the host will like be like, all right, you know, two weeks from now we got Carlos Mencia coming through, but right, right now I want to bring up Nick Turner. They're like, we could have gone any weekend, right? We, we chose the Turner the weekend. Nick Turner weekend. He's did what? I didn't see those. Yeah, um, you get uh, you get out credited on your own show that you're headlining. You're traveling all around the country though, right now, huh? I mean, yeah, I, more than before. Know. Though this is you're de- you're definitely, definitely traveling now yes. more than you ever have yes, before. Yes, yes, yes. And are you enjoying that? Because that's one of the things that I'm sort of hesitant about. The idea of constant travel. My father was a truck driver. And uh, growing up in a house where your dad is constantly on the road, it seemed like he was extremely more stressed than if he wasn't constantly on the road. Yeah, I I think I found that, like, uh, it's it's kind of... Work is kind of punishment. Right. Because it's a lot of traveling and it's a lot of being alone. It's like I've built up a pretty fun life for myself. Yes. Here and, in New York City. Yes. And then when I go on the road, it's four days where it's like I'm kind of in jail. Right. And I have to leave everyone and I'm in solitary. And then- You get lonely. I, I have to do- Not really. No. I mean, yeah, sure. I'll miss my girlfriend. But it's like, I, I don't- I don't care that much. You're I mean, not a self-loathing, naked in the bathtub comedian who is just crying, listening into uh, random Annie Lennox albums, and then you get on stage and you're like, "Women suck." It depends on the weekend, right? But generally, no. You know, I, you know, if I'm just, I can be as much a piece of shit as anybody just on my computer all day. What's the difference? I'm in a hotel room I'm at my house doing it. Right, right. I right. got weed. I got a hookup. It's all you um, need. It's fine. Uh but it's not as much fun, you know. And the audiences, you know, who knows how it goes. Right. But when it goes bad, you got to do it for an hour, and that's a bigger bummer right. than just bumming out, you know, a Bushwick audience for eight minutes, right. and then getting your two drinks and just like whatever. Yeah. So now you're going on the road and you're doing full hour sets, and do you feel comfortable doing it in an hour well, now? Forty five fifty. Four, Forty five fifty, depending um, on the crowd work and the riffing. Yeah. Uh, you feel more comfortable. I mean, obviously you. Yes, are, it you, took, but it, you know everything takes so long, it especially does. from I'm not a fast learner on anything. Nor am I. Any next level is just terrifying uh, for a year. Um, right, and it it did take like about a year before I felt comfortable. When you first got booked as a headliner, because obviously you have done you've done the Jimmy Fallon program, and uh, what was the other your other credits? I did. Thank you for asking. Um, I uh, I just printed this off of IMDb uh-huh. in anticipation of this show. So let's can't go down wait the to hear list. it. Uh, well, I have a thanks in Barry Rothbart's Hungry movie. Okay, and that is enough. Uh, Barry Rothbart, a great stand-up comedian, a movie called Hungry, all about the it's competitive Jeff Cerulli directed. Very great, great, great documentary. It is great. It's- and it's on Hulu, and uh, I, w- I highly recommend you watch it. So you have a credit on that documentary, so now you're allowed to travel across the country yes. and headline. So that it's funny. That That is, I think, like my latest IMDb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I did a, you know, I did Fallon... Uh, and I did Seth Meyers, and I did a John Oliver, and so when you first get told that you're a headliner, how yes. long does that take for you to <laughs> sing? Does do you uh, do you immediately when you get told when you are you because you're told you're the headliner well, now? Did yes, you feel like course, oh I'm comfortable day. being the headliner, or you're like are you sure? I'm ne- I was just I don't am I you know um, how long did it take you? Yeah, the getting- first day that you're a headliner, of course you feel like a fraud, and every right. day thereafter. And how long does that the fraud uh, stink stay on you? 
Um, it stays on you a while. It also, it's like, no matter what you do, if you don't do it regularly enough, right. you're never going to feel comfortable at it. But, you know, it's like I, taking a dump. You I know? generally do it like once a month. Um, and uh, so, you know, at this point, I've, you know, I've done, I've been doing it for like a year and a half. Right, know? right. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, maybe two years. But, um, it's, uh, it's awful. And the fact that you gotta do it again, that's the shit that really pumps me out. Yeah, how do you- A late show, a second show. Every, once, every single late show, I think, I, I am halfway through a joke and have become convinced that I've said it before. And you have. At that show. Right. Um, and I've never have, I don't think, no one's told me about it. Right, right, right. But- I am just 100% convinced, and I panic, and, and then like I'm like, no one's doing anything, no one's let, no one's saying, all right, it seems like I didn't do it, right? But it's just uh, off. I just like you gotta ramp. You know how much you gotta ramp yourself up to then just go out and do a fucking hour, and then like right after that, you're like, how about you doing it again? Right, and do the exact same thing with the exact same amount of energy. I I was opening yeah. up for a guy named John Reap, who was uh, most known for Last Comic Standing, and he was the Dodge Hemi guy. Hickory. Hickory. Um, that thing got a hammy. That's what sort of made him a very, very wealthy man and a household name in places like Appleton, Hickory. Wisconsin. Yeah. Hickory. <laughs> and places like Hickory. And he opened up each set with a huge song and dance routine. It was about five minutes. He would start by, he would, off stage, he would slam a Red Bull, run on stage, do this entire thing. And I just remember thinking, I want to go more of the, uh, more relaxed route when it comes to stand-up. This physical stuff it's will so drive funny. you insane. Yeah, because that's five minutes of his act. What if he just had like a killer five right. that he wanted to start with? And the thing is, he does. I don't know. I've never seen He's his, very, very funny. His yeah. thing, he's fucking phenomenal. Um, but uh, that's, that, that is very important, I feel like. Just working, I, I, uh, um, I had a joke where it was just like, if you... I feel like sketch groups. If you just if you just wrote for five more minutes, right, you wouldn't have to kiss your friend. <laughs> Find a different out. You know, I just see so well, many shows. I mean, the vast majority of sketches end with somebody kissing a friend or with somebody shooting a friend. <laughs> there has to be more than just two alternatives. Yeah. There has to be a way. Take what some if, extra time, please, because then it becomes one of your great sketches. You have to do it every night. Right, right, right. And you're just kissing Mike every night, and you're like, "Why did I get here?" Yeah, you're a high energy guy, though. You're always knocking over things and whatnot. Definitely, definitely it is. Uh, yeah, it's once you start doing an hour, it's like, oh, damn. <laughs> right, you're like the you're you're living like the meatloaf of comedy who used to pass out on stage because he was trying so hard. Have you ever had an experience on stage where you was the second show you were you were rocking it and you're just like I am far too out of shape to do this. Um, well, once I was I had food poisoning. Oh Jesus! And uh, so I got it, and then Wednesday all day. You know, if you get a bad case of food poisoning, it's the worst pain. That's and I was just, I couldn't get off the couch the entire day, Wednesday. And then Thursday morning, I have to get on a plane. And uh, this is when I, I went to North Carolina. I went to <clears throat> uh, Good Nights. Okay. Um, so I got on a plane and. God, Good Nights? That's a terrible name for a comedy club that implies well, it's sleeping. It's a great comedy club. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's a great comedy club. I'm just saying, Good Nights, it sounds like something like, come, have a nap. Well, it was called Charlie Good Nights, but then uh. when it, Charlie stopped owning it, they called it Good Nights. Right, right. So, yes, I understand. There are two. 
definitions of good nights, and one of them is not complimentary to staying up late. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but uh, so then, like the Thursday show went fine. It's a Thursday show; it's laid back anyway. And then the Friday early show was phenomenal. And then the second it was done, I was just like, because I, I, you know, I was, I felt terrible, but your adrenaline can get you through right. anything. Like when you're on stage, you don't need to pee, you don't no. need to sneeze, you don't need to do anything that you and normally do in life. That's always my least, uh, you know, I'm always so nervous if I don't need to pee because that's my closer. You know, <laughs> I, I piss my pants and I get on out of there. The yeah. audience loves it. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, you, you you miss the pants and just get them in the face. Oh God! But uh, splash zone. So the second that the first show was done, it was like it was great, and then I was just I was spent, and I went and laid down on a couch in the green room until the second they called me up for the second show, and I just had nothing. <laughs> I just had nothing. You know, it was just on yeah, autopilot. That sounds like a nightmare. I I uh, yeah, and it wasn't a good show. Like it wasn't going well. The first the first couple of uh comedians you know it was also like their worst show you know it was just the worst show of the week right 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 every weekend's got one they have to yeah and they had there's literally no way around it right uh but uh so it was like the audience wasn't helping and i had nothing in the tank right and And you just got off of food poisoning so you were drained physically and mentally in every other which possible way but how do you overcome that then when you're on stage i mean obviously you know we know as uh you know when you're on stage and things aren't going well when you first start doing stand-up, you just crumble and yeah. everything, or you turn into a total asshole. You almost uh, you you get into a defensive mode where you porcupine up, and then you well, why you you know you start lashing out at the audience. Yeah. Or I mean, so but now we're a little bit farther along. You're headlining all over the country. You're a pro. You just plow through. Well, yeah, that's and that's a that's a big part of the comfortability factor the longer you do it because i can go do a show in brooklyn right and then you know the audience doesn't give it to me on the first joke i will just yell at them sure you know because i have all the confidence in the world who cares that this is going to be great and they need to be yelled at yes and sometimes they and those audiences specifically need to be yelled at yeah um and uh but if you know, but if it's in a new environment, and certainly when I started headlining, if it wasn't going well, it's just like, all right, I got my script. Let's just go through it. Right. Because I don't know what to do, and I don't have the confidence to talk to you guys. Right. Uh, they know what, they know they don't like you. You know they, they don't like you. Or maybe they even do kind of like you a little bit more than you think they like you. A lot like of times you, there's nothing you can do. A lot of times you're just in Toledo in a 300-seat room talking right. to 12 people, and it just ain't working isn't that something is it is the equivalent of in a dream if you try to run but you realize you're not really being you're not able to run yeah and there's sort of something like that where some shows just never get out of the muck you can just never take them off yeah it's ridiculous when you're stuck in that and you have to sit in that yeah. but is there anything in life now that you've been doing stand-up i know for myself personally nothing really makes me uncomfortable you do you feel like your level of just like being able to sit in uncomfortable situations is so much higher now because you've been forced to be the one that people are staring at during the uncomfortable situation? Yeah, I, I well, I don't know. I feel like I've I've everything is is uncomfortable, but I I feel like sometimes I don't. I will leave an uncomfortable situation. I just have. I've done. Two, are you sensitive? So you're still sensitive to things that are just like ugh, like a little bit just off. in life, right? Like I'll leave anywhere. I'll leave at the drop of a hat, because there's something that happens. You you know, if you have a girlfriend, right. there's no real reason to be anywhere for yeah. any amount of time longer than what you than why you went to that place. I like at shows. I don't hang out at shows very much. If I'm done, I will usually leave a sure. show because I just I I don't know. It's just 
I don't know what to do anymore. I mean, unless you want to go and have like 18 beers at the bar and spend all your money, you That's just what it get is. out of there. That's right. literally what it is. I was at a show last night, and it was like endless drink tickets, mm-hmm. um, and they, the drinks were for anything at the bar. So, you know, you could drink good whiskey all night, right. and then it was like some friends were there, and I was done, and I felt good, and they were like, come on, man, let's get blitzed. You know, I'm like, ah. Dude, I'm telling you, I haven't been drinking very much either. I've cut it way down. And that's the only, like, people are like, how do you do it? And that is the only way to do it. You have to leave. Yes. You just have to go. Yeah. Because if you're at a bar, I mean. And no, all, you're not not drinking. You're not not drinking because that's, bars really, can you imagine how terrible they are as venues without the booze? There's nothing oh there. God, yeah. The whole point is the booze. You might as well turn the lights on. Turn the lights on. <laughs> Get him out of here. When did you start falling? Did you fall in love with stand-up first? I'm more of, I actually fell in love with uh, comedy Early 90s SNL, Farley, Sandler, Chris Farley was my idol, John Candy. Those were my uh, inspirations. Were you a stand-up comedy fan growing up? No, I don't think it's uh, possible to like it first. Right. Because, (laughs) you know. Why do you say that? Well, sketch comedy is so flashy. And it's like, yeah, of course, SNL, because they had movie stars on there. Well, not at the time, but they became them. Well, no, at the time, you know. Adam Sandler was certainly Chris Farley, David Spade. All those movies came out; they were on the show. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know that's being marketed to you in a way that stand-up comedy isn't being marketed to kids. Right. Um, I mean, it certainly wasn't then. No. And it's very difficult to because the, uh, the subject matter is never, never appropriate for kids. Right, 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 right. There's no overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 100% adult themes. So who did you see first? Because I mean, for me, it was Farley. As soon as I, well, I mean, I wanted to do comedy ever since I was like six years old. But Farley was just like, holy shit! Well, no my, one's going to be funnier than that dude. My, uh, my big, big, big first love is the state. Um, I'm going to put like, my yeah, balls in it. Yeah, certainly early 90s SNL. But like the thing that I claim ownership of okay. is the state. And then, you know, I, I recorded them all and learned them all. And, you know, that's the only thing I have like that kind of relationship with. Now that one, Steve the, Martin. The, the state ran for two years. It was on MTV. I believe it was just a two year run. And they the went on to make movies like um, Wet Hot American Summer. The, the, there the are some great people. The state actually had um, three full seasons. Okay. But the third season was two seasons long. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like the third season was like 30 episodes, and they, they split it up into two seasons, but I don't know, for contract reasons or whatever. But it's really right. four seasons, and then um, they had their CBS special. Uh, and so it's a good chunk of... And then you got into Steve Martin after that. Um, yeah, well, that's probably the same, same time, but that's just like the first stand-up records that I that I loved and listened to all the time. Yeah. Were you funny? Did people think that? Because, I mean, it's tough. Some people... Uh, take a much more cerebral approach to comedy and no one will ever think that they were funny and then they get on stage and they're like, I didn't even know that he could talk. Or um, were you more of a loud, boisterous person who people are like, you should do, you no, should go yeah. on stage. Uh, no, I'm 100% the uh, the naturally funny guy. Yeah. But uh, the the uh, the crafting it and dotting your I's and yeah. crossing your T's, that's always been more difficult for me. But yes, no, just uh, I couldn't do anything else because I, I, I'm... I can't, I can't work. <laughs> I have like a disability where I have the, no respect uh, for anyone. The no, the disability of having zero shits, of yes. giving no shits about anybody's and feelings. Like, do you not want to work here at H and M? I do not. No, I don't. What kind of fucking question is that, you idiot? Right, right. Did your parents encourage the uh, comedy growing up, or they did they were they? 
thanking uh, Christ when you actually found something that you liked? Um, no, I mean, I've always been, uh, you know, a passionate kid. I was, like, very into a lot of stuff. I was very into sports. Okay. When sports didn't, when you didn't, didn't matter if you were a fat guy. Right. When you were just a kid, I dominated everything. Yeah, what were you I'm playing? Because I'm just good at sport. Everything. Well, I played every sport, like, when it came around. I, You know, lacrosse when I lived in Maryland. Okay. And baseball when I lived in Virginia. But, you know, basketball. A lot of tennis. Uh, swimming. Uh, basketball. So you were just crushing the sports? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then- um, And what age did that- And then the... it's like puberty happens, and right. it's like, okay, if you're overweight, you can't compete. Man. At that level, and then it's fine because that's when I transitioned to theater. Um, well, thank God you had it. Puberty is the worst time that ever happens in a human being's life. <laughs> I was looking at a bunch of. Uh, I was at Barnes and Nobles yesterday, and there was a guy I'd never heard of him before, Shane Dawson. Okay. Have you heard of this guy? He's 26 years old. I googled him. He's a 26 year old star of uh, some kids programming. These 11 and 12 year old girls were weeping at his feet. It was so unbelievably insane. I t- wait. What's his? Why is he famous? I don't know. I think he's on Nickelodeon. He does something like that. Oh. Um, and I've never heard of the guy before. People were weeping. These girls were weeping. Prepubescent teens. And uh, you know that's that's one phase of life. The puberty is the most difficult transition that any human being has to go through. For me, I was like six foot four and I had like four pubic hairs. It looked like the top of a dumb baby's head. It was absolutely disgusting, and I was the size of a huge monster. Yeah. Were you a big kid when you were starting to uh, starting yeah. to mature? And then when you are a big kid, people treat you like. Like an adult, sort of, but you're also you. You're like you're like um, Blaster from the Master Blaster. You're huge, but you have the mind of a child. Yeah, but I think you had the height that I didn't have. Like my, I yeah. grew at a, at like an appropriate pace uh, to you six one. You weren't a nephilim. No, my brother was closer to that. He had some like medical issues because he grew pretty fast, and he he was he's six four. Okay. Um, what were the medical issues? No, I don't know. We're, Bad you know, ankles. Yeah, like yeah, knows, he, sure. yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, but uh, so you were able to adjust from a life of being the all-star athlete into uh, maintaining well, friendships. You're a fucking but, kid, you know. It's just uh, it didn't matter to you know. I didn't. I never had any designs like I was going to go be pro. Right, right. Yeah. I'm going pro. I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah. never even as a kid. <laughs> yeah, nor Like either. I played tennis was the sport. My whole family played tennis. It was a yeah. big deal. And my brother was a lot better than me at tennis. I was good. Right. Um, but my brother was like great and he um was not good. You know, overall. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I did He's good for the Turner family, but at right. Nationals there's another family that right. has a really good kid too. Right, and then you know I was always a funny guy, and I was always the funny guy, and that one hundred percent my whole life is that was my thing. Right, and, and that was your identity. So that's what I wanted more, and then right. so it didn't matter because now I was in high school, and now we could do all these things, and now we could do forensics, and now I could be great at that, and it was, uh, and it was something that I excelled at. Right, um, and obviously I pursued it. Yeah, so you started did you uh so after you you did high you did theater throughout high school. Yeah. And then you went to college. Theater and forensics and we we uh forensics is like acting competition. Right. And uh we had a killer school and we would win states every year and we would go to nationals every year and we cool. would travel to other states and we would do it. It was a big deal and we were the most successful team in the high school. Wow. And uh there was like money put into it and it it was uh 
it was almost like our football team was terrible. Were you, you know? the so the forensic kids were sort of the bullies? It wasn't. They were bullying the football pussies. Well, that's the you know it wasn't like uh, we were the football team, but we weren't like uh, nerds. with the braces Nerdy. and the headgear and be like I do the forensics. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, but it you was were just cool. a huge team, right? Um, and because uh, there was like a lot of different types of kids in it, but because we were so. Uh, successful. Right. It was attractive to other kids who might not have done it in another school. Whatever. Right. So you would walk into these schools and you guys were just a ragtag group of like badass dudes, and everyone was shaking in their shoes, knowing that yeah, Nick we had, Turner and the Kings is had, coming to town to yell at us. We had uh, literally uh, uh, like varsity jackets. So um, funny. Yeah. Yeah, and we would go into schools and literally be the largest group. Right. And then, you know, at the end, we they know at the last at the end of the last meet, you know, half the names called were Clover Hill kids. Right. And so it's like Clover Hill comes, like great, it's a fucking Clover Hills here because you don't go to every one of them. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but whenever you do, you win. Uh, how do you how do you even um, judge forensics? Is it based on uh, cadence or just like strength of argument? What do they do? Beauty. Um, well, yeah, there's like a there's like a volunteer judge, you know, right. and someone it's a who sad person. probably you know is like a has a family member who does it or used to do it or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, you just have a bunch of rounds, and they sit in, and you all go up and do your prepared piece, and it's one person moves moves people to the next round, and there's just a bunch of rounds, and it's and then at the then there's like a finals with a few judges, and uh, boom, it's just yeah, it's a uh, you know, I don't know. Well, my categories were comedy, which are always in any line, uh, no matter how you do it, it's easier to judge comedy because you're laughing or you're not laughing. Right, right, right. Um, and you know how well you're doing. So it's you were comfortable on stage at a pretty young age. Yeah. You got cozy, which is really one of the biggest hurdles I think that most comedians have in the beginning because um, when you're uncomfortable, everything just comes out of your mouth wrong. You turn into a person you don't even want to be. Yeah. And uh, But you didn't really have to go through that. What were some of your growing pains when you started doing stand-up? Because um, obviously you were you weren't uh, afraid quit. of the spotlight. You quit stand up. I quit a couple times. Um, yeah. I uh, I started doing stand up when I was nineteen. Okay. In 1999 in Richmond, Virginia, where the only open mic was during the summer on Tuesdays at <laughs> Mulligan Sports Bar on the roof. They would have road hacks come through. That's great. And if you wanted to, you could open mic before. That every Tuesday during the summer, but with a live audience, uh, an audience of actual uh, uh, audience human of people beings. who came to see specifically stand up comedy, right? Um, because with- it's on the roof, you know, you don't have to be up there, you know, it's it's not uh, ambush at all, right? Right. So, uh, and I, you know, I didn't I didn't realize I'd gone for like a few summers, and we didn't realize. We didn't realize how shitty these comics are. You know, it's well, like you don't realize I how to shitty see, the comics are, if, but you also don't realize how amazing the opportunity is to perform in front of people, actual people at an open mic. Well, yeah, you don't. I don't know anything. I don't. I don't. I don't realize stamps a big, uh, big of a deal because I live in Richmond, Virginia, and we don't even have a club right. that does it sometimes. And the one club that you do have Throughout puts you on the roof. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> like an well, event. maybe if they're real bad, they'll just jump right off. Yeah, it's fine. It's a weird summer thing, but um, so. Then, you know, one day, I don't know, I, I started doing it, and I did it, like, um, there ended up being this other, like, a music mic that I found that uh, a couple other people did, did stand-up at. That right. Um, 
And Did these road hacks, when they came through town, there's a thing in stand-up comedy. You can make a living in stand-up comedy. You can make roughly thirty to $40,000 a year traveling around the country, being sort of a mid-level person. These are called road pigs or road hacks or whatever. And the material has to be unbelievably lowest common denominator, right. extremely um, palatable to the drunkest of all minds. You know what it was for me? One time I saw the same guy come back the next year with, and did his act word for word. And uh, that was like the first inclination I had that this wasn't like what I wanted. Am I the, am I super stupid? Don't answer that one. Um, but am I the only person to, that thought that stand up comedians made it up as they went along until I, I had that entire um, illusion completely shattered? Mike, you thought that also. I had that completely shattered when I spent. Um, I started doing open mics at the Acme Comedy Club in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, I watched. Um, oh, he's a great comic. Oh, I'm forgetting his name. He's very quiet. Emo Phillips. Uh-huh. And Emo Phillips came on stage. He uh, put together a saxophone and then took it apart, never mentioned it throughout the whole act, and I thought that was amazing. And then I saw him do it again, the exact same process, and I was like, this is all this is all fake. Is it not after it's that? like when you realize pro wrestling isn't real. Did yeah. you realize that they just regurgitated the same thing over and over again like that, a stump speech? That, there, I don't, there was no realization like that for me because I figured there's right. all, all the types of comedy. It's all written. You know, right. I, I knew it was written, but what was surprising to me was when I found out that tags weren't written were weren't improvised right. every time. It'd be like, oh, look at this guy. This guy doesn't believe this because blah 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 blah. You know, it's the same. It doesn't right. matter. There's no guy. There's no guy. <laughs> there's no guy. Yeah. You just and there's you have that no, tag like, every night. Yeah, and, and the uh, a classic like I d- I did that bit in Oklahoma. Somebody came up to me after yeah. the show. Dot dot dot. Yeah. Like no, they probably didn't. Yeah, you know. Yeah, or you know they did, and then you just. Talking about that guy for the rest of the time. Why are we? Right. Why is half your joke talking about the other time you did it? <laughs> but what was was that a fear? I was on the uh, Mark Norman and I went and did a show in Minerva. Never heard of him. Mark Norman, uh, the great stand-up comedian and a good friend. Um, we did a show in Minerva, New York. This headliner picked us up. He wore the exact same shirt for the past ten years, and it was all tattered and disgusting. After the show, uh, we spent the night. We were driving back, and I looked at Mark, and we realized he's homeless. The man is homeless. He's technically a comedian, but he yeah. lives out of his car. He was doing all of his work. Is that in? Was that a fear for you? When because a lot of people don't Reality? settle in L.A., yeah. set, settle down in Los Angeles, or settle down in New York, which is my personal strategy to have a base and then grow from there. People just go all around the country. Is that a was that a uh, a lifestyle that was ever appealing? The road pig lifestyle. Never, Bob. Very good. Uh, no, the road because some people love the idea. The road's terrible, right? I don't. It's so uncomfortable. It's just really you're just uncomfortable all the time. I don't know. I you know we have friends who, like I don't I don't remember the last address Sean Patton ever had. Um, right. And he's killing it, and he's out there, and he's fucking great, and he performs a lot, and it's like you know like he and Kanane, like they just live out there. And Kyle Kinane, it yeah. makes them great comedians. Uh, but that's just a specific thing that you can that not many people are bred to handle when there is an option of living in New York or LA and being fine. Right, right, right. Um so I So you were doing the so you were doing the open mics on the rooftop and yeah. then you were just like, I'm moving. Did you just come right to New York? No, I went to college. Okay. I was do I was in the middle of I went to George Mason University. Okay, but then even then I did, I quit after two years and moved to New York to, you know, 
vaguely do you know just to make yeah. it just start whatever i just knew that i i'm not a good student no. um because i'm i don't put any work into it yeah and the teacher's um, just just up there talking and it's like why is that person on stage and not me my last semester in college i didn't even buy any books because i knew i wasn't gonna read them you're saving money yeah uh but uh so anyway i just came to new york because i knew even if i stayed and got a degree in theater who gives a shit that's yes. not something you saved yourself thousands and thousands yes, of dollars. I saved my parents. And then I moved here and I just, uh, I started doing stand-up and taking UCB classes right away. Yeah. When I, when I was 20, I moved here. So you just jumped right in. Did you have a difficult time transitioning? We were, I was, uh, Suba Argawal was on last week and we were talking about her transition and, you know, I mean, it's brutal. This city, when you first get here, is a goddamn nightmare and it is not letting up at all. There's no, like... We'll be soft for your first year. It's like, no, we are hard always. Get used well, to it you know or move what? on. It actually wasn't that bad because I, you know, UCB was like just getting up, you know, uh, just getting off the ground. Yeah. Um, and it was something that you could really get involved with and uh, and easily because my parents had money and they could buy me classes, you know. Oh, okay. And uh, so um, that was good. I met a lot of friends that I still have, you know, right. immediately. And stand up open mics exist. You know, there's a there's a and I started working at TGI Fridays Ooh. in Times Square. And another guy there, the guy who actually uh, like trained me in my first day was a stand up comedian okay. in the city. Um, and so you know, he showed me a couple of things. But then, did you like what was your favorite piece of flair that you had to wear at TGI Fridays? Um, I like don't know. Little... I know I had like I I you had to wear a hat too. <laughs> And That's one day so I didn't weird. have a hat, so I went downstairs, and it's just like souvenir shops. So I bought an NYPD cap, and yeah. um, all the black guys on the staff uh, kept razzing me all day, <laughs> and I didn't get why. Right, um, right, right. Back then, yeah. Um, but I certainly wouldn't. Anyway, well, it was um, pre-Eric Gardner NYPD, and well, it's before. Yeah. It's when I had some respect for policemen. Right, right, right. Um, but uh. What, what so you we got here. About? So you're at TGI Fridays. You're oh just yeah. So anyway, with and then what did but your parents, then, but yeah. then 9/11, right, happened. So you were here actually 2001. I came here January 2001. Okay. And um, I was actually working. I had gotten fired from Fridays, and I was working downtown. What'd you do to get fired? I was disrespectful. That's not shocking. Yes. You didn't knock over an entire table of food. No, or I went over. I, I uh, There was an assistant manager. He was talking to like some other like managers or whatever, and I went over, and I was like, I need you to do this thing because I blah, 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 something needs to happen. And he's like, all right. And then I came back uh, a minute later, and I was like, so you going to do that now, or are you going to sit here and do literally nothing? Yeah. For a little while longer, whatever, and then it was like I got suspended, and then I came back and like I said something else. That's but, good. Um, it's just like fuck that guy. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So you're out of TGI Friday. Oh, who the, cares? I work at fucking, TGI Friday. It does not. Yeah. It does nothing matter. That's a great job to quit. It just because it's seriously there are one million jobs exactly so like many. it. Oh, so many. So yeah. anyway, um, I was working at like uh, it's like a gourmet delivery service uh, restaurant, but it wasn't a restaurant. It was just delivery, and I was like took calls. Um, and uh, so you got all to- of our clients were in seventy five percent of our clients were in the World Trade Center. Okay. So uh, 
that you know, that hap- that happened. 9/11 did happen. Um, if you believe it did. I lost my job. You right. know, I'm just starting to do comedy and like it's a real freak out. You know, it's like a lot of people, you know, for months be like when is when are you when is it cool to be funny again, you know? Right. But I'm a fucking open mic like when is it cool for me not to be funny yet again right. nobody wants it's just the worst thing that anyone the last thing anyone needs is me ruining your night but i started doing sketch okay um, so after so okay so i did sketch for three years you were working in uh during 9 11 and so you must have spoken to people that that didn't make it through the event on a regular daily basis how many people do you think that you knew actually in those towers in some way if you would have seen a picture of them be like, I remember that dude? Well, I didn't know any of the people because I was at a- You weren't actually delivering calls. the- Oh, you were just no, taking no, the no, calls. No, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that must have been a hell of a rude awakening, huh? To New York at that point, did you ever think about packing up your bags and getting the fuck out of here because uh, New York's under attack? No, well, that's the- that's I'm one of those people who just literally, there's not a single other thing I've ever attempted to pursue. Right. Uh, there's nothing else to do. Were you at an open mic September 12th? But I'll tell you what. I was I was living in a, uh, uh, it was me and my roommate on the first floor. This is in Queens. And in the basement, there was a guy. And then above us, there were three people. And after 9-11, the, the guy in the basement moved because his company moved to Jersey. Um, me and my roommate, her, her boyfriend had seen everything, was like in counseling. And it was like strained. Our anyway, we, yeah. we moved out. And then... Um, above us, one of the guys joined the army. Right, dude, um, I'll tell you and, that. And one of the girls moved away because she was in the building and she got freaked out. But it's like, yeah, it nine uh, eleven came and just didn't matter what happened, who you were, where it was, it exploded everything. It affected so I, everyone. It made me do sketch exclusively for like three or four years because you felt like you weren't able to get on stage as a stand up. You felt like you would be uh, disrespectful if you no, started not, making not jokes. No, not necessarily. Or... It's just so hard. Right. And I did come in, and it is very daunting, and you start going out to open mics, and, and there's nothing worse. Nothing worse. And then so something big like that happens, and then some friends I made in the improv classes, you know, presented an opportunity to join a sketch group, and so it seemed a lot easier and yes. more friendly, and I did that until I lost my mind because people have varying degrees of uh ego no um comedic uh, talent no like uh drive sure uh they, not everybody has the same goal i think ego and comedic talent are both uh they equal drive no that's true but i i, I wish more people had an, an ego in the thing right but in that group literally zero people uh do it so everyone just disbanded, anymore. and again, you found yourself alone. Well, no, I mean, it was like, that was a thing that I, I, you know, that became a problem before, and we broke up as a group right. because of it. Like, How there were three of us it? who wanted to do it for a living, right? and three of us who didn't want to do it for a living. So the three of us who wanted to do it for a living decided to get together and be like, we, we have to stop doing this, and then we started doing something else. Right. Um, and uh, But that's the thing. They, it's, it's a hobby for a lot of people, and then so- I, I mean, didn't lo- want it to be anybody else's decision how well I was doing, right. which is why in 2004, in uh, like I just passed my 10-year 10, 10 mark like uh, a few months ago uh, since I decided to do stand-up right. and until now. And, I mean, obviously that's working out really well. Do you have any – do you ever miss the days of having a sketch group that you can rely on, that you can like – 
Not because the thing is, when you do stand up and you when you kill, you get it all. But when you bomb, you get all that too, and it makes you feel very awful uh, most of the time. Now I think the calluses are a little bit, uh, you know, they're on there, so the burn, uh, the, you know, the, the the hit isn't quite as hard as it used to be. But at any time when you started doing stand up, you're like, I could go for about four or five people eating shit with me on stage right now because this really sucks. Um, yeah, but I never did anything cool. You know, it didn't. It was very early on and uh i miss the acting i love the sketch acting right um i loved that part of it but i don't miss any of the other people the other people just make make made it so much harder yeah so you were saying your your parents come from money what did your parents do um my parents, uh, they don't come from money. I don't come from money. I mean, they had money. They had right. $400 for me to spend in a class, you know. Was, right, right. Uh, my, they, my mom is a teacher, uh, and my dad uh, works for the, or worked, they're both retired, for the Department of Transportation. Right. Um, so is it safe to say that you didn't have, like, a super traumatic upbringing or something? Like, you know, because a lot of people reach for their material from their past and from the trauma that they had no, in life. No, no. But you don't you don't feel like you no, had my, a... my childhood was pretty idyllic. My parents right. are literally the world's greatest people. Yeah, I've heard, I've actually, I've truly heard that yeah. before. Um, and so where where did you start mining for, for bits? You know, if you don't have that personal trauma, that tragedy that you're going to turn into comedy, where did you go um, for material? It's goofy. That's that's why you know Steve Martin was my guy. That right. that was my intro, and it's it, it has nothing to do with saying anything. Do you think the it's com- just being the funniest person in the room? Right. Do you think the comedians have to be miserable? Because there's, I, it's no. one of my personal. It makes me so sad that so many of right. my friends are. Yes, it does. Yes. Uh, there's so many people that I've known for so long that I can't even talk to because right. they're not they're not even happy on the good days. Right, 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 right. I mean, it's good to be a little bit uh, down if things aren't going well, but not to the point where it stops you from trying to achieve things to make things. Not, so you you got to be able to right the ship. Yeah. And if you if the, if you're too depressed, uh, slamming whiskey down in the cabin and not guiding the goddamn steering wheel, the thing is going to go into the uh, you know go into some god random yeah. rock or something. I remember uh, getting something. Um, on the same day as a good friend of mine got the same thing. And uh, it was a great day. What did you get? And I was talking. I don't want to talk. I don't. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say who it is. But uh, we'll just say it was a Montreal thing or something like that. Sure. Sure. Um, it was a TV thing. It was good. Okay. Um, but then when I talked to him, he said uh, his first thing was like he was worried about he wasn't going to get this other thing. And I was like, "What? Well, this is the best thing that's happened to you. You're right. worried about the other thing that isn't even as good as this thing." Right. I mean, how do you? That is. I mean, in my that seems like the man has a uh, it's a disability. He has a mental yeah, disability. Yeah, but it's not it's not you know an isolated incident. And it's right. nothing against him, but it's just no. like that happens a lot. So what's one of the ways that because I mean it's this business is impossible. There's so many people who want to do it, and it's so difficult to break through, especially pe- for people like you and I yeah. and Mike. We don't come from the business. We don't have an industry sure. uh, backing sure. when it comes to parents and things. There's a lot of nepotism that you have to fight through. Um, what is one of the ways that you stay positive when you realize how impossible this entire thing is? For me, it's just knowing that I'm here until I die. I'm doing comedy until I die, so it doesn't really matter how long or what. Whatever yeah. happens, it's going to happen in a certain amount of time frame, and then when when it's all done, I'm dead, and whatever it was, it was. Yeah. What do you do to uh, maintain? Because it's it, it, you get told no a lot. I mean, Man, everyone it does. It is real tough. 
Right. Um, and I have been working on this television project for the last few months that I was uh, trying to sell and assembling a team. Right. And then I went out to L.A. and we, we went to everywhere. And I don't think it's yep. going to happen. Right. Um, but the odd thing is I'm so much happier in this moment after I realized it's not going to happen than I was at any moment leading up to the question of whether it was going to happen or not. Just because now you have the definitive answer and you're no longer wondering? Because or? I'm not working on, and it, you know, it wasn't something I was completely in love with, and it wasn't something that I, it was, you know, originated from me. Right. So uh, I didn't have the passion, and it was just, it was very problematic, and, uh, but it was like, at the end, it was like, it doesn't matter, just push through, let's just get paid, right? whatever, not the, who gives a fuck, blah, 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 say whatever you need. And then, uh, but, and then like getting out of that, and then realizing, oh well, I have this thing to do. Right. Like once you're it, in it, you think it's everything. Right. And then, but now it's like oh, I have this, I have this. I'm not. Everything's still fine. I'm still. I'm. I'm I can right. still pay my rent. I still have things on my calendar. Um, that was a big deal. But it, but it's sort of like a bad relationship. You're like, okay, now I'm free to go explore other things that I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, there's so many different things that we do. Right. And there's so many different ways I make money. That. Right. Uh, but the problem is, you know, you don't know if people are, people. You have to just the phone has to ring. Right. It can't be like things. Well, you're going for this, and you're going for this, and you're going for this. You can't. The a lot of things have to just come to you. Right. Because of what you've been doing. I mean, and one nice thing about getting the no is a lot of people don't even get to the point where they're able to get any response from these people at all. I know. When we I got were, uh, turned down by all the best. It was a really it's good. good. It is it's good. good. It's That's crazy. The my, friend's, uh, my friend was just selling a show, and he got turned down by eight people, big companies, and yes. we were just like, perfect. The ne- They know who you are. I this cannot is believe I got a chance to get turned on by all those Exactly. Uh, Henry and I were out uh, in LA a couple of years back pitching our show Cheddar Lake and we met with HBO, all these people. I was and living out there. I saw you. When you that's were, right. We got out. we got stoned together. Yeah. Well, um, yes, we, we murdered a guy. Yes, he is. <laughs> um, and so uh, Henry Zabrowski from the last podcast on the left, Wolf of Wall Street, you know, all the, all the great Henry Zabrowski projects. And uh, HBO came back with some feedback and it was just we couldn't stop looking at him. And we're like, I guess that's a win. They couldn't stop looking at us, and everybody passed. But everyone stop said, "Looking, looking." I'm like, what does that even mean? Um, but everyone had positive feedback. Everybody passed, and it was a little bit. Uh, it was a bit of a hit. But I was actually surprised how well it felt to just get anything, and just yeah. to be in the room with these people means that you're doing it. Yeah, you know, and it's important to remember. Do you think there's a certain self defeatist attitude that might? I've had a lot of ideas, and right. this is the only one that ever, you know, was Got turned it. down by HBO. You know, that to know. get turned down by yeah. HBO is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of people very get happy to be to turned down <laughs> by HBO. It's pretty dope. Yeah. So how do you? I mean, there is a lot of self defeatist. But at attitudes. the end of the day, you've you've done nothing. You did nothing, and you <laughs> failed. You. It's the only it's business where if you failed, it's just like all right. Very good. Yeah. It's all a good learning experience. Cool, cool, cool. A lot of work went into that. Yep. Okay. About 500 Next year. Hours. Next year. <laughs> all right. Uh, it sucks almost, you know, that, and, and it's a, just finding a way to deal with um, it sucking so many times because it's just, it, once you get, once you kind of get there, I feel like I make a living at it and that's all you can ever possibly hope for. Right. Because, uh, the projects that you become involved with um, involve way too much luck because no matter if you – I made a pilot and it doesn't matter if it's uh, – if it you know starts with your idea 
and you you know you write you control everything you're in charge of everything right. but at some point a hundred other people have to come in and help right and uh there's just no way anything you can bet on anything and they almost don't want a finished product that's the other irony of the whole situation you go in with a abc script everything is on lock they don't want to do it because they want to have their opinion put in there as yep. well and they want to feel as if they're part of the creative process even though they yep. are on the very tail very tail end the very tail with end of the entire thing pitch, i didn't uh you know we worked hard on that well, i've you know we put more man hours into this than any other project uh, besides the one that actually got made. Right. And uh, we did not write a one line of dialogue. Not and a single one, because that's not where, where we are in the process, because you have to develop it with someone, yeah. Right. It's very confusing. I got, What do you do when uh, you know, you're out there and you're talking to like old friends, and they're like, have you thought about getting a show? Have you thought about getting a show on TV? You guys should do another pilot. You guys should do a pilot. You should do a show on TV. This business is so... It's so impossible to understand because it's such an abstract. There are no rules. If if people were hired the way that people are cast, that company would be shut down immediately for every <laughs> single job discrimination uh, complaint that is on the books. They 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 want the perfect height, the perfect size, the perfect weight, the perfect skin color, the perfect yeah. everything. And if you're not that, it's going to be a very difficult uphill battle yeah, for you. Well, you know what? Go to fucking school. Go back to school. Go to fucking school. It's awful. But it is what it is. You know, right. I don't, it, it's, you could do so many things. It's so fucking narcissistic. Yeah. Uh, don't fucking do this. It's terrible. And hopefully it works out. Do you think it pays, do you think the fact that, you know, there is a, a lot of ego in people in entertainment, I mean, obviously we think our words are worth, uh, you know, recording, spreading, and we have the delusion that people want to hear them. But uh, do you think that it sort of equals itself out with just the unbelievable amount of rejection? Um, I think that, uh, you hope it evens, uh, you, you hope to get to even, Right. you know, um, it would be a miracle if it was all worth it. And then, uh, anything over worth it is fucking gravy. Right. Right. Um, but once it becomes where I would say it's definitely worth it, you know, I, to everything's it. worth it because I don't want to do a bunch of it's not that I have an aversion to work, but it's I have an aversion to pointless work, which is every job I've ever had because it had nothing to do with not something I was I felt like a, I didn't feel like if I wasn't a waiter, you know, right. well, then these people wouldn't get their food. Fuck those people. They would I, I want to see them eat out of a fucking toilet. Ooh. Get out of here. I have no respect for anybody. I think that's your new reality show. Nick Turner watches people eat out of a toilet. Eat Who can it. do it better? You'll be like Joe Rogan from Fear Factor. You'll be the highest paid person on television. You're going to be massive, and you'll be doing a <laughs> podcast in five years from now. No, it's a little much. I just don't want to do anything. I just can't do anything else. I right. don't want to do it. So, it. so getting to do, and even, yes, it's very stressful, but it's a lot of times it's just stressful not not but not doing anything what's your favorite part of the entire process the writing the performing the pitching i mean i pitching shows is super fun being in that room i actually have a great time some people hate the idea of going to suits and having to sell them an idea i think it's extremely a good to, uh extremely productive and fun to meet these people what is your favorite part is it just the straight performance or do you enjoy the business side of it um i mean there's parts of every there's 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 a lot of parts of everything that i love um I obviously, you know, 
writing sometimes is the worst, but also sometimes it's the best. <laughs> um, performing can be, yes, I, obviously you get your your biggest highs and your lowest lows while performing. Right, right. Um, that's where everything, that's all the preparation goes into that. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I... En- what, what's your favorite mood to be in I when you I don't enjoy feeling like I'm in Hollywood. And what, what do you mean? Where I don't, you know... Like when you go into the meeting and I'm pitching and, and, and you know, just so much fucking judgment. And I get- You and, feel that judgment. Well, no, of course, because you yeah. get in there and you know that like that guy has gotten like a rundown about who you are. Right. And he's got an opinion about that. And like either he read uh, our script or his assistant read, his script, read our script and- Said it to him, and I have my girlfriend is an assistant to a director, right? So I know what I have a little more insight as to what people read and what assistants read, and to what they say behind closed doors. My um, my boss for quite a while, he did uh, he worked with models, and I would sit in uh, while these models auditioned, all obviously beautiful women, and after they would leave, the things that they would say about these women, it was just like, how are you even finding flaws in these people? Yeah. And so once you do get on that sort of side of it, you realize how un, but then you you realize how unbelievably um, judgmental and insane. But they make it up; they're making up like fantasy flaws. So yeah. you also kind of realize that, and they just have a job to do, and their job is to you know figure out how, why you suck and why yeah. they shouldn't hire you. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I actually did see the other because when I made my I made a pilot for Comedy Central, yeah, for Crazy House, and uh, last year, and um, I was for the first time ever I was in the uh, audition room on the other side. What was easier, being the auditioner or being the person watching? Um, everything's awful. Audition that was the hardest, shittiest thing, the shittiest part of the process was was the casting, and audition. was you. Casting, you are the casting Me, director. Casting, I'm not the casting director. We paid a very great casting director a lot of money to do. I I realized he's a big part of the budget. Oh, uh, okay. Um, but uh, you know, just being on the other side, um, and then your friends come in, it's very difficult. Right. Um, but it also, I see how prepared actors are for auditions. Right, and. I lost my mind a little of it because I would never be that prepared as right. like half of those actors are. But those are that's the difference between an actor and a comedian. Fucking actor that he recognizes that that his job is auditioning. That is your like right. where our main job is doing stand up mm-hmm. and that whole bullshit. Everything comes along with that. Their main job is auditioning. Right, and, right. Um, because my main job is not you know headlining at a club or whatever. My main job is getting those jokes ready right you know i mean that's the thing the uh that's the underground as a politician's main job is literally just calling people for money pretty much just a, yeah. a, a telemarketer yeah and right, an right, actor's right. job is auditioning yeah a comedian's job is just writing jokes i mean and performing the, them to crowds who hate you. don't give a fly yeah, yeah fuck could about not you. care right i mean so the uh, the under the under um the um this the 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 writer's job is pressing delete the scale exactly the skeleton of the arts yeah. and all of these things that people think are powerful positions is just so much uh like louis ck is in the same fucking coffee shop doing the exact same thing that you're doing the same we're doing fucking, yeah right. premises yeah exactly i mean it's just you know it comes from a place of um it's not uh it's not not underneath the uh, the irony of becoming above 
uh, society, right, by becoming a leader or, uh, you know, an entertainer is that you you really have to humble yourself, be less than them to some degree. So then when you shine and you actually show up, you understand them enough. You've put enough work in to uh, make them believe that you're the God that you want them to think that you are. Yeah. It's and ex- you feel guilty a lot of time. Like going back to just like the difference between headlining is just like why why am I the he- you know you look yourself on a bill, right? And then there's three people and you're like, holy shit, you know, oh man, every you know well, how did it how did it get to be me out of all these people? And then you see like a fantastic fucking feature and you're like, I'm sorry, I want to go out and apologize to everyone that I'm right, not right, right. like the best fucking thing they've ever seen. Right. Uh, yeah, it's difficult to follow a great feature. It, it, yeah, that happens. No, I, well, it's never happened to me, but yeah. I heard it happen. It hap- it's happened to some people. Yeah. Um, that's great, Nick. Yeah, I love it, dude. Um, any shows coming up? Nope. Nothing? No, I'm You're not on Twitter? You're on no. Facebook? You're on Facebook? There's nothing. I'm going to be at Staten Island tonight. Ooh. Um, I think the next weekend I have is... It's not going to come out then. Doesn't matter, Nick. When is this coming out? Yeah, a couple of weeks, two weeks, <laughs> not this week, but next week. Uh, May first, come see me in uh, San Diego. Beautiful. Okay, San Diego. <laughs> Here's looking at you. <laughs> um, all right, find my, uh, Nick on Twitter. It's Nick's Turner, right? Nick's Turners. Nick's Turners on Twitter. That's Mike Cosby. Don't give me that look. I'm not giving you looks. <laughs> That's Mike Coscarelli on Twitter. I am Ben Kissel on Twitter. Make sure to check out the other shows on Cave Comedy Radio, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, The Roundtable of Gentlemen, and the last, the last podcast on the left. And we'll talk to you soon.